Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. I'm here with my good friend, Annie. And I say everyone's my good friend. But the truth is I really have wrangled all my good friends to do this first because I'm less nervous. And I think I happen to have a lot of really smart, interesting friends. So Annie also lives a block away from me, so I can literally Ferris Bueller my way to her house by jumping through backyards. So she's somebody I've gotten to know really well. And our kids go to school together. And we deal with all of the momming stuff together. And there's a lot of it. Thanks for having me here. Oh my gosh, thanks for coming. It's not close. We are going to talk about a case, a woman named Kelly Cochran. And this, as I mentioned to you before, this case has been covered by a few different podcasts, and it's also been covered on a documentary. And there's a lot of leading up to this horrific set of crimes. I'm telling it a little bit differently, focusing mainly on the background of the suspect. So I'm hoping if listeners are seeing this and thinking, oh, I already know that case, I'm trying my best to tell it a little bit differently. Kelly Cochran was born on June 5th, 1982, and brought up in Merrillville, Indiana. And she was a difficult child. We don't know anything about those, do we, Annie? Um, Actually, your kids are pretty well behaved. No, no. Really? Wrong. Well, they fake it well. Oh, really? Have you ever worried about either of your kids becoming a criminal? The older one. No, really? It could go either way, you know. He could be either someone that changes the world or someone that ends up in, you know, jail. Oh, yeah. well, then this is a good episode. Yeah. He's not going to be like this woman, but um, I mean, hopefully, we. It is true, you know, the easy kids are fun for us to raise, but they rarely do anything amazing in the world. <laughs> so maybe we need to embrace our more difficult children. I have one who's not particularly easy, as you know. <laughs> so here's Kelly Cochran. She's a difficult child. And she's particularly bad when she becomes a teenager, which is normative. We all know that happens. And according to her mother, she would break the rules. She got into drugs. Mm. She would run away. Mm-hmm. And from what I can gather, Kelly just really didn't care about consequences. The punishments were meaningless to her. Mm-hmm. And even her mother said, this is just the way Kelly is. She gets her mind made up and she just does stuff. Mm-hmm. And I read, okay, goal-driven, undeterred by consequences, so much so that her mom ends up having to send her to a girl's home. Okay. And that's the last place. Like, that's – you've tried everything else once you're Uh sending your child away. Yes. I mean, it's almost like relinquishing custody. It's a big deal. Okay. So – From what I can see, her family life seems pretty normal. And despite that, she's still beyond control. Mm -hmm. And at some point, she returns from the group home, some point in high school. And she ends up dating her next-door neighbor, Jason Cochran, who is nothing like her. From what I can tell, that aside from geography, they had absolutely nothing in common. Mm -hmm. And she's outgoing and selfish and talkative and obnoxious, and he's meek, quiet, maybe a little weird. Mm -hmm. According to Kelly's mom, has his own troubles. And, you know, she's the party girl. So 
her, even her brother said, please don't get married, you guys. This isn't going to work. Right. But it kind of works. Mm-hmm. It works for at least a while. And um, they live in Indiana for 10 years. They ran a pool installation repair and cleaning service. Jason's back started hurting him at around this point. So they've been there 10 years. He's doing a lot of manual labor. His back starts hurting him. Everyone's like, "Mm, is this, how badly does your back hurt? But evidently it was a pretty significant disability and we'll learn why. So Mm -hmm. Kelly and he decide to start a new life in Upper Michigan, a city called Iron River. Mm -hmm. So people who live there, it's near Canada. It's really high up there. It's really freaking cold. And they all call it the UP. Okay. I don't know why it's the UP. Oh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Okay. I'm really good at geography. (laughs) Not. Here's a teaser. There's reason to believe that bad girl Kelly had been unfaithful throughout her marriage, and that becomes important. But for now, we'll focus on Jason and Kelly's lives up in the UP. Mm -hmm. Kelly has an affair with at least two men she works with. Mm -hmm. And somehow this setup is working for her until one of the men she's sleeping with goes missing. It is October of 2014, and one of the men with whom Kelly is having an affair mysteriously disappears. His name is Chris Reagan. He's a handsome guy. He's got two sons, and he's now gone. He works with Kelly at a military contractor company called Oldenburg, and it's his ex-girlfriend who he dated right before he starts hooking up with Kelly who reports him missing. So at first, everyone's looking at her because Uh ex-girlfriends, you know how we are. (laughs) I mean, it could be a motive. I don't know. But it quickly becomes clear that they are actually really good friends. She's very legitimately concerned about him, and she's not a real suspect. So... As it turns out, Chris had recently, he decided the UP is too cold, Not whatever his reasons are, he wants out. Mm-hmm. So he has taken a job in Asheville, North Carolina. Okay. He reconnected with one of his two sons. He has two sons he raised, separated from them. I don't know the backstory. Reconnects with one of them, and they are both, he lives elsewhere, but they're both going to move to Asheville. So he's in the middle of planning. He's mm-hmm. quitting his job. He's organizing this move. And everyone knows that's happening, but he's not supposed to be gone yet. And no one can get a hold of them. In Iron River, you don't get a ton of murders. And there's this fantastic chief of police named Laura Rizzo. She takes charge of this case, and it will change her life forever. Chief Rizzo and the ex-girlfriend gain access to the apartment, and it's a mess. Clearly, he's packing. There's to-do lists. There's paperwork he still needs to send in for his new job. Uh It looks nothing like his apartment typically looks like, according to her. It looks like somebody picked him up out of the apartment while he was in the middle of doing all of this. But there's no Mm break-in. We just see loose ends, eyeglasses, medications, that kind of stuff. And everyone knows something's very wrong. So his ex-girlfriend had noticed his car at the park and ride for two weeks. It had been sitting there. And his knee brace is in there. And he just had surgery. He needs his knee brace all the time. So everyone knows there's something very wrong. Mm-hmm. He disappeared into thin air. My goodness. Now, Iron River, Michigan, is a tiny place. And it's surrounded by woods. Its population is only 2,800. And in the woods are bears and wolves. It's dense. Like, in the pictures, you see this cute little tiny town, and it bleeds into this just vast, the aerial photos, there's like vast, deep, dense, thick woods. Beautiful in the fall, I might mention. It's like a movie. It's like a movie. Yes. Reminded me a bit of The Shining, in mm-hmm. fact. Yeah. <laughs> so as Chief Rizzo investigates, she learns about Chris's and Kelly's affair, married Kelly Cochran. Mm-hmm. And here's where things start getting really weird. 
We're about to dive into this dance of this beautiful female chief of police, the first female chief of police in this area, and a very psychopathic woman who believes she will outsmart her and the rest of them. I mentioned the documentary a few minutes ago. That is called Dead North. It's about this case. If you want to see these characters, I recommend watching it. It's got um, several episodes to it. I liked it a lot. I said it. I said that Kelly Cochran is a psychopath. None of the other podcasts lead with that, but I think it's important to lead with that, and here's why. A psychopath does not a killer make. I've said it many times. The vast majority of psychopaths who make up 1% of our population, that's a huge number, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't become murderers. Yeah, we all have this idea, right? Yeah, that's a lot higher than I thought, though, 1%. <laughs> and think about our school. 1% of the kids in our school are going to be future. Well, they're not future. They are psychopaths. I mean, you can measure psychopathy as early as two years. Keep your friends close and your psychopaths closer. So now we're going to be introduced to a strange couple, and that is Jason and Kelly Cochran. Investigators arrive at Jason and Kelly's house, and Jason is acting very, very strange. He opens the door. He's angry. He's uncooperative. He says his wife's not home. He's all fussy, impolite. But then all of a sudden, his wife appears. Kelly's just right there next to him, and she's bubbly. Hi! how are you? Totally normal. So when they asked him why he lied, he's like, oh, I thought Kelly might be in trouble. Red flag? Seems like an odd response to me. And the investigators are immediately suspicious. They ask Kelly and Jason about Chris Regan. This is the missing man Uh and his car that's been left at the park and ride. Mm -hmm. And remember this, Kelly says she's never heard of the park and ride. Kelly is then asked in front of Jason if she and Chris were having an affair. And she says, yeah. Oh, 100%. Wow. And you know what? Jason, my husband, knows about it, and he's cool. He stands there, as they describe it, was eerie with his emotionless face when she says this out loud to investigators. And then Kelly starts acting really upset that Chris left Mm -hmm. to North Carolina without saying goodbye to her. Oh, my God. So So the police are like, something's fishy. So he goes missing on October 14th. Now it's October 28th. Kelly and Jason Cochran come into the police station for questioning. She, again, friendly, confident. I saw it with the taped interviews. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, she doesn't certainly doesn't act like somebody's killed somebody. She's very really confident. And Jason's normal? Well, normal if maybe you killed someone, but not normal if you didn't. So she details this affair she had with Chris, and she says she loved him. She claims that she and Jason were separated at the time. And these interviews are separate. Jason and, and Kelly are being interviewed separately, and that's important. Okay. She says that she and her husband Jason are separate at the time, and that he was okay with her seeing Chris. Hmm. Shockingly, she tells Chief Rizzo that she was also seeing other men. What she says is it's because of Jason's back injury. He can't have sex. And therefore, he's okay with her having sex with other men. So when asked who these other men were, Kelly describes a coworker, another coworker, Eric Erickson, who also works as at Oldenburg where mm-hmm. missing Chris is and where Kelly works. Mm-hmm. This has red flags all over it. To me, this is consistent with the whole rule-breaking behavior. I don't care about consequences. I don't care who I hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's the profile of Kelly that seems to be pretty consistent throughout her life. Jason Cochran comes in for questioning right after his wife, and his demeanor is wildly different. He says he is anxious, and then he starts bawling like a baby. Why would you bawl like a baby if you're just being asked, hey, do you know anything about this missing guy? So he says he never met Chris and that he lets his wife have sex with other people because he cannot have sex with her due to his back disability and he doesn't want her to leave him. Mm. So you might be onto something. I should add that throughout this investigation, Chief Rizzo, the awesome 
chief, uh, female chief of police, learns that Kelly told many, many people that Jason was abusive and obsessive and that he was threatening to hurt her, often said he was going to kill her and then kill himself. It's a story she told everyone. Yet according to her friends, her neighbors, her family members, it's Kelly who's super controlling in the relationship. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly a way to look like a victim if you're saying that you're abused. Wouldn't be the first time we'd heard that. But maybe, maybe this guy's meek, but aggressive. We don't yet know. Mm -hmm. During the interview, investigators asked Jason if he ever threatened to kill Kelly. And he actually looked quite believable at this. He was like, what? No, he looked almost offended and really confused. He does say that on October 16th, which is two days after Chris Reagan went missing, that Jason had checked himself into a hospital because he was suicidal. He was really emotional. So this guy's missing. This guy's now crying, being questioned about it. And he's saying he went into a mental hospital two days after he was missing. Things move really slowly, though. So it's a few weeks later when Chief Rizzo questions them again. And she brings up that Chris sent a text to Kelly in the first week of October saying, don't be with other men, be with me. He goes on to say he loves her and he wants her to stop going out with other men. During that interview, Jason says that he was on a walk one day. It's one of the things he does to try to improve his back condition. And he took an unusual route. As I said, it's all forested. There's many places to walk and get lost and hide a body. But he takes this weird route that puts him in to kind of like the town next door. And he would have had to make this sharp left turn and go four blocks into town. Very, very weird, Mm -hmm. circuitous route that makes no sense. And he says when he was doing that, he saw Kelly's truck outside of an apartment, and he assumed it was Chris Reagan's apartment because there was a kayak on top of the car, and he knows he's very outdoorsy. Okay. But he would have had to have known where Chris Reagan lived to end up in front of his apartment. Right. Kelly is then interviewed right after her husband, Jason, and she refuses to take a polygraph test. Mm-hmm. They both still deny that Jason had ever met Chris. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we have this polygraph denial. They have enough to ask the judge for a search warrant, and they get it. So they go to search Kelly and Jason's house, and they find a ton of weapons, which is not unusual to have some weapons, especially with all the hunting there. But That's true. In the UP. In the, in okay. the UP. I can see that. It's like Manhattan, but it's the UP. Uh-huh. And it's not just a hunting weapon. It's knives and swords and a twenty-two for protection. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then someone also sees what they think is blood spatter on the ceiling. Yeah. So blood wow. spatter, as opposed to splatter, it's not called splatter, it's blood spatter. I know this from working on murder cases in courtrooms, is really telling because it can tell you how far away the victim was from that surface. Mm-hmm. The cast off, which is how blood comes off of the weapon as it's being used, oh my God. is why we usually get blood on ceilings, okay. right? So yeah. it's really good evidence. So they're like, yes, we've got this. They're mm-hmm. super excited. But they don't have enough to rest them until the forensics comes back because is it an animal blood? Is it a human blood? Is it their own blood? Right. Are they vampires? We don't know. We don't know yet. (laughs) Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. By the way, there are vampires in every major city in the United States. That's going to be a different episode. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'll tell you about it. Yes. But while Kelly and Jason are waiting for the 12 hours while their house is being investigated or searched, Uh they go to their neighbor's house, and that becomes really important. Mm -hmm. By the next morning, Kelly and Jason are gone. They have fled. Not suspicious at all. Right? It's totally normal especially since they were in the middle of, quote-unquote, renovating their house. 
Rizzo, Chief Rizzo, brings the neighbors in because she knows she was just with that. Kelly and Jason were just with them for 12 hours. And they say the neighbors, the sailors, said Jason and Kelly were super nervous. Jason never seems nervous, but he's like, what do you think they could find? And Kelly's just being super talkative. And then the sailors, who are the neighbors, say something that really surprises the investigator. They said that the mother who lives there, who is, I think, a grandmother or a mother, heard a gunshot in the middle of the night, not too far from when Chris went missing. And then in the middle of the night, they heard a series of power tools. And they asked Kelly and Jason about that. And they said, oh, you know, we're just renovating at 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Oh, strange. These neighbors say that they'd only recently started hanging out with Jason and Kelly because all of them like to get high together. Mm -hmm. Again, they say that Kelly was super talkative. And I thought this was telling. I don't know if it mattered to anybody else, but they said that Kelly started every conversation with everybody, even strangers, with something like, oh, you're so good looking, or you look really good today. And to me, that just screams that psychopathic, manipulative, shallow charm Mm -hmm. you know, to get attention and to get whatever you might want from that person. But then these neighbors, the sailors, go on to drop a huge bomb on investigators. They say that in the days after Chris Reagan had gone missing, when all the power tools were being heard in the middle of the night, Kelly and Jason invited them over for a barbecue. And these neighbors thought that this was super unusual. For one thing, they've never been invited before or since, but also because Kelly and Jason were always broke. They never had any money. Oh, no, gross. What do they eat? (laughs) The neighbors said that it looked like about $200 worth of meat. And it was really unusual meat. He said it was translucent. It looked like nothing they'd ever seen before. And so they asked Jason. And Jason said, well, I used to be a butcher and I specialize in exotic meats. They ate it. And it was like nothing they'd ever tasted. Texture, look, taste. They were freaked out. They didn't know a man was missing at this point. Did they disclose how much of it they ate? They ate a lot of it. (laughs) They ate. Like they had dinner. Oh, gross. The sailors say that after hearing the power tools, the gunshot, and being fed this unusual barbecue, they are 100% positive that they ate Chris Reagan's remains. Mm. Needless to say, they're traumatized. They, They all lost a ton of weight. I don't even know if they still eat. It's unclear. They're not recovering well. Could you imagine? No. What does that even taste like? We could ask. (laughs) Lamb? Well, and I kind of was waiting for them to say chicken. Yeah. But they didn't in this this interview. They were just like, it was like nothing we'd ever had. They talked about it being similar in looks to shellfish, like crab and shrimp, but not tasting (laughs) like it and not like not not white. Okay, look, we know that Kelly is reading like a female psychopath. And if she is indeed a psychopath, and if she, Jason did indeed kill Chris Reagan, then for Kelly, feeding the body to the neighbors is just a good way to hide evidence. She doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Psychopaths have no remorse. They have no guilty conscience. Yeah, that's true. They have no problem hurting the neighbors because who mm-hmm. cares? No empathy. Exactly. For anyone. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, she probably is like, okay, yeah, whatever. You ate a human, but you helped me, and I, I'm what's important here. <laughs> Chief Rizzo gets a warrant to collect DNA from Kelly and Jason, who are now gone. Mm-hmm. And this isn't – everyone's like, why DNA from them? You know who they are. It's to eliminate them as possible donors to the sample of blood that they collected from the ceiling. Chief Rizzo rocks. She gets the, the neighbors, who are pretty pissed at this time, to fake that they don't know that they ate human – and call Kelly and Jason and figure out where they were. Finds out where they are. They're in Indiana. 
So investigators show up in Indiana to collect this sample, and they have a warrant for the sample. Mm -hmm. Chief Rizzo confronts Kelly about lying about not knowing where the park and ride was. Remember, she told her, Chris's car is at this park and ride for two weeks. Do you know anything about it? No, I have no idea what the park and ride is. Mm -hmm. She says, well, we know you do because your ex-lover, who you mentioned, Eric Erickson, who also worked with Chris, um, told me that you guys went up there to have sex. Around this time, investigators find more evidence that might link Kelly and Jason to the disappearance of Chris Reagan. So as I described this area, it's heavily wooded, but it also has a bunch of mines. When mines are abandoned and they're in the ground rather than in the side of the mountain, they fill with water and they become bottomless pits. I've always said a mine is a great place to hide a body, but now you can't do it because I said it out loud. <laughs> but they are because they're so deep, 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 deep. Mm -hmm. And... They do look in them for weapons and bodies, but you can't go that deep. A diver can't go that deep. But they do find something. They find a barrel attached via clothesline to a cinder block. And why would one have a barrel attached to a cinder block? Because you don't want it to float. Uh -huh. What would be in the barrel? Yeah. Maybe a body, maybe a weapon. Furthermore, during an interview with another neighbor, Chief Rizzo discovers that Jason and Kelly had been burning something very weird in their backyard. So weird that the neighbor came up and was like, I have lived here my entire life. I have never smelled anything like that. What is it? Mm -hmm. Kelly's like, oh, you know, shrubs. He's like, not shrubs that grow here. Mm -hmm. And Kelly's like, well, it is. And he's like, why don't we call the police and ask the police what they think it is? Mm -hmm. And she's like, fine, I'll put it out. But alas, these are all dead ends because the blood forensics all come back inconclusive. Oh. The blood spatter was indeed blood and human blood, but it was too compromised by cleaning products and paint to really discern whose blood it was. The barrel at the bottom of the, the mine had been there all winter and was now empty. And the fire pit where the neighbor smelled something so foul that he threatened to call the police gave evidence of a pair of jeans and a reciprocating saw, but no DNA. What I read from this, though, is it's obvious that if Kelly and Jason committed this crime, if they did kill Chris Regan, mm -hmm. then they've done this before because they are really good at covering their tracks. Yeah, that's true. All of this investigation takes months and months. And the city manager is really frustrated with Chief Rizzo. He thinks that she's spending way too much time on an endless investigation that's going to lead nowhere. Mm -hmm. The suspects are out of town now, move on to other things. But she's getting a lot of community support. Okay. She's frustrated, desperate. She calls the FBI. Uh -huh. The FBI is able to help immediately. They reverse engineer the GPS on Chris Reagan's car, and they oh prove that he was at Kelly and Jason's house the night he disappeared. Oh, my God. Huge wow. break in the case. But then in February 2016, 16 months after Chris Reagan went missing, a 911 call comes into the Lake County Sheriff's Department in Indiana, and it's Kelly Cochran. She says her poor husband isn't breathing. He's oh. sweaty. He needs an ambulance. Medics oh come in and Jason has no pulse. <gasps> this scene looks like a possible drug overdose. But the medics say Kelly was super uncooperative. She's in the way. She's all, you know, kind of circling the body and they ask her to leave. She, to their reports or to their, their memory of it, she was interrupting them, trying to save his life, but he was dead. There was no life-saving measures, but they don't, she doesn't really want them near the body. No. Autopsy report rules it a homicide. Death was asphyxiation due to strangulation complicated by heroin. Kelly knew he was not like her. He's not a strong, sophisticated psychopath. He is a flawed, 
emotional, weak man. Mm -hmm. And because of that, she figured, I think she figured he's going to cave. To whatever she wants. Yeah, or to what the investigators want. Yeah. And eventually he's going to tell them what they did to Chris Reagan. Mm -hmm. So what do you do if you're a psychopath? Right. You got to get rid of him. I guess why was she so worried about Chris Reagan leaving anyway? She had so many partners. We're going to find out. So now there's a new investigation in Hobart, Indiana. So you have the Indiana investigation with a whole new investigator, and you have the Iron River investigation with our heroine, Chief Laura Rizzo. These two investigations get combined. Mm -hmm. And as expected, Crafty Kelly was smart and controlled in all the interviews. And the new investigator, informed by Chief Rizzo's experience, knows that he has to come up with a unique strategy because Kelly's... Kelly's a, a wise woman. So around this time, a little bit before that, Jason, his good friend, his like gaming buddy, mm-hmm. calls the FBI. His name is Walt Ammerman. And he says, Hey guys, I know my buddy's, I know my buddy's dead, and I want you to know his wife is a problem. She's super controlling. She was not nice to him. She's domineering. And I just, I just want to get that out there. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're like, hey, how do you feel about becoming a confidential informant and helping us? And he agrees. Okay. They develop a plan, a ruse. This is fun. Walt calls Kelly and tells her that Jason had sent him a letter before he died. In it is a sealed letter, and then on it is a note. And the note says, should something happen to me, if I am to die, I want you to send this letter to the Iron River Police Department. Mm-hmm. She panics and it's audible on the phone. She begs him not to send it. Kelly now knows, or at least she thinks she knows, that she is screwed. Mm -hmm. She does not catch on to the ruse. She immediately calls the investigator from Indiana and Mm -hmm. asks for a meeting. They meet immediately. She tells him, it was Jason who killed Chris. My husband killed Chris. She admits that they dismembered him, but she claims it was all Jason's plan. And at one in the morning, the investigator and Kelly Cochran hop into a car. They drive six hours to Iron City, Michigan. That is committed police work, and I'm just going to throw that out there. And they do this so that they can do a reenactment in Kelly's house. I'm like, I'd be way too tired. Uh But it makes no logical sense. The way she says where she was versus where Chris was versus where her husband Jason was, there's just no way it went down that way. Uh So they hop in the car, and they go back to Indiana, and the investigator says, okay, I get it. You don't want to give all the details at once. Kelly wants to remain in control. She wants you to work for it. To me, I'm like, that's true. Psychopathic fashion. They're always in control. Mm -hmm. They always believe they're smarter than you. And in the end of the day, they really don't give a shit about anything. So Mm -hmm. they're not super eager to help you in your investigation. So once Kelly realizes she's going to be charged, she flees again. And she's so slippery. No one can hold her down for long. And she does have one weakness, though. So she flees, but she's not gone for long because... Psychopaths like attention, and she keeps checking her phone for messages from the detective. And because of that need for attention, law enforcement is able to ping the phone, track where it is. They find her in Kentucky. They arrest and book her. But she still has to keep talking because there's two bodies. Well, there's not – we don't have Chris Reagan's body. There's one body, but she's admitted to killing Chris, so we still need her. Now she turns her story around and says she was in on the plan to murder Chris, and she was supposed to do it herself. We can't know if this is true, but she says on the wedding night, on her and Jason's wedding night, they made a very romantic pact, and that is if either of us ever cheat, 
we have to kill the person with whom we cheated. What? Did you guys do that too on your wedding night? That's ridiculous. I feel like that doesn't happen often. She says her feelings were too strong for Chris Reagan, and so she couldn't kill him. But here's something everyone needs to know about psychopaths. They do not experience those feelings of emotion. They learn the words of those emotions. They know what to say, but that's only because they've been studying it and they know saying it works. Mm -hmm. We will get to why that is and what it means. But for now, I want you to think of everything we've heard from Kelly through that lens. So now it's May 2016, and Kelly agrees with Chief Rizzo to go back to Iron River and help look for Chris's remains. She wants to bring Chris home to his sons and to his family. So she is so disturbing during this search. They're looking in this area that she says they put Chris's body in these black plastic bags. They have cadaver dogs out there. She's sitting there smoking. And in one minute, she's talking about how she felt guilty that she was involved with Chris and he ended up dead. And and it was because of that guilt that it's her, because of her, Chris isn't here. And then in the next second, she's literally talking about the high she got when she saw his blood and how exciting it was when they were sawing Chris's body. Oh, my God. I know. I'm like, she's not. She even said she tasted the blood. She's not even hiding her crazy anymore. She is not human. She's not human. The dogs find one of the plastic bags that they use for the body, but by then the animals had gotten to it. The bag's empty. Mm -hmm. Then the dog goes into this clearing and gets alerted again. And in the clearing, they find Chris's skull. But here's another crazy twist. I mean, it's almost like the story is not real. As I kept watching it and reading about it, I'm like, how do I not know this story? During the documentary, Dead North, that I mentioned, they go back to reenact finding the skull. Mm -hmm. And a cameraman, I think it's the cameraman, finds a jawbone. And this is all recorded. So it's like people are screaming. Chief Rizzo's like, don't touch it. Uh Just everyone freaks out. And here's another little fun aside. The investigator from Indiana Mm -hmm. And Chief Rizzo, mm-hmm. they fall in love. Oh, of course. They fall in love. Of course they do. She said something cute. She's like, I always had to find Chris Reagan, but I needed to find you first. <laughs> um, in another screwed up twist, there's a new city manager. He's this really questionable guy. Thayer is his last name. And here she solves the biggest mystery ever in their town, and he fires her. What? Rude. I know. I don't know what happens after that, but I was not pleased about that. Kelly Cochran is found guilty in all counts of the death of Chris Reagan. And as this is read in court, no reaction from Kelly. Mm -hmm. She said beforehand, she was so confident, she said to the investigators, you don't think I could turn just one juror? And that's that narcissistic, I'm smarter than everyone sense of grandiosity that we see in psychopaths. Mm -hmm. She's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But what about the murder of her husband? What about Jason? Yeah, poor Jason. And at this time... Her own brother comes forward and says, guys, there are others. His sister is a serial killer. Oh, no. Spoiler alert, we can't prove it. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of evidence that points to it. And some Mm -hmm. of the best insights into Kelly's psychopathic thinking comes from a call between her mother and her when she's in jail. Her mom's like, Kelly, how did all this happen? And Kelly says, mom, you really didn't see this coming. Her mom's like, uh, no, and I can't believe you killed others too. Mm-hmm. Kelly doesn't deny that. Um, and then her mom asks Kelly if she has a conscience and have you always felt this way? And Kelly says, I have always been this way, mom. When asked by her mom, when did she remember it starting? And she goes, 
It's always been here. Ever since I can remember, I've always been like this. Mm. So then her mom's like, well, why the hell didn't you say, mom, I need help? And she said, oh, there's no help for this. I tried. And she's not wrong. Like, unless you have what we're going to be talking about next, you have some idea. You can't really walk into a room and be like, okay, I think I'm a psychopath. Um, I have feel no guilt, no remorse. And I also really would like to kill some people. Right. It doesn't really work. So she says she's tried. I don't know. But then Kelly also tells Chief Rizzo that she was born this way. She says, I do not have feelings. I don't feel sadness. Mm -hmm. I don't feel remorse. And I don't feel sorrow. Mm -hmm. Then she says that the 14 butterfly tattoos that are all over her body are symbolic of people she has oh. lost. Jeez. The detectives believe that each one of those butterflies is an homage to her victims. Oh my God. And we've all heard that. Serial killers keep trophies. Yeah. These are her notches in her belt, maybe. Mm -hmm. Then Kelly admits that there are more bodies in Indiana, Michigan, and Tennessee. But we get no more details. In April 2018, Kelly Cochran pleaded guilty to the murder of her husband, and she was sentenced to an additional 65 years on top of her mm -hmm. life sentence. Mm -hmm. Wow. Immediate impressions before we can dive into why someone does stuff something like this? Okay, so she doesn't feel a lot of those feelings, but does she feel, do they feel fear? No. Well, yes, but not the way we do. That's actually my, a lot of my dissertation um, was about anticipatory fear because we know that adult psychopaths don't experience it. So mm -hmm. we put them in really fear-inducing situations like you're going to be shocked or you're, we're going we're gonna to blare noise at you. We tell them it's happening, 10, 9, 8, doing a whole visual countdown for them. The rest, like us normal people, our heart rates start to increase. Yeah. We have all the psychophysiological markers of fear, mm -hmm. not them. They don't experience the somatic markers of anticipatory fear. So I'll dive into all of that, but you're right. They don't have the emotional part to hold them back from the crime, but they also don't have the fear of the consequence. They don't. That's no. why this keeps happening. Right. Okay. But not all psychopaths become killers. Let's look into that a little bit. So charm, lies, manipulation, impulsivity, those are all the marks of psychopaths. But the flagship features, as we just talked about, are the lack of remorse, guilt, and empathy. Psychopaths understand social rules, but they just don't care. And that's because they prioritize their own self-interest above the rules or even the well-being of others. Mm -hmm. So not every time, because if it doesn't interest them, it's, it's they're very goal-driven. So mm -hmm. if the social rules aren't a problem for them, then they'll follow them. So that's confusing because then you'll be able to remember, well, there was this other time they did the right thing. They helped the kitten or they uh, you know, obeyed the rules of the, <laughs> the kitten. There's always a kitten. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but they're, they're thrill-seeking and they're goal-driven. So if the social rules interfere with that, they cast them aside. It just doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And we'll see later that that thrill-seeking and goal-driven behavior is actually a key to their personality that we can work with and actually help them get them from going to, you know, psychopaths can become hedge fund managers. They can become surgeons. They can become mm -hmm. base jumpers or bomb detonators. Or they can become serial killers. So they're highly intelligent. Usually. I would argue that one of the reasons that some of them do become successful pro-social psychopaths is they have the highest intelligence and they probably come from wealthier homes, wealthier backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So they have access to that sort of higher education or mm -hmm. skill learning. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, when they do become criminal, they are the cruelest of all predatory criminals. Mm -hmm. you, you don't want them. You don't no. want them getting off. 
the wrong foot. They're, they're never going to yeah. teach them to have a heart, mm -hmm. but there are ways that they can get their thrill that isn't going to, I mean, yeah, you might end up with a Bernie Madoff and have a Ponzi scheme, but <laughs> I'd still take that over, you know, 12 bodies in their way. 14 butterflies. <laughs> 14 yeah. butterflies. Yeah. I don't mean to laugh, but it's like she was hiding in plain sight and she did outsmart people. It took a very long time to nail her down. Mm -hmm. And it was a clever ruse. I was really proud of those investigators. Yeah. So psychopaths are super acutely aware of their own needs and advantages but they have this difficulty working through moral concepts and recognizing emotional expression in others. So they're hyper-focused on what they want, but they're under-responsive when it comes to consequences and, quite, consequences and threats. And I mean that quite literally. It is not nuanced. If you show, there's this woman who did this in a study, you show a psychopath a picture of a person who is super afraid, fearful, terror, mm -hmm. This, this is an example, but statistically, they don't recognize what that emotion is. But this yeah. guy's like, yeah, I don't know what that's called, but it's definitely the face people make right before I stab them. Oh. Yeah. I'm like, so they're oh. also honest in a sense. They, and if it, not. They, are, they can be honest if it serves them or if mm -hmm. there's, they're being entertained or if there's no reason not to be. Right. They can be honest. Mm hmm so female psychopaths are a little different, and it's important that we differentiate it. They have all the same underlying characteristics, but their goals are a bit different. They're usually less physically violent than their male counterparts, but they're certainly not less dangerous. So their trajectory follows something we would expect from females. Um, they use relational and verbal aggression. So they're more likely to ruin your reputation, sleep with your husband, mm -hmm. gossip, slander, um, but they also appear to have a stronger need for approval from other people. They might use flirtation, sexual behavior. They feign suicide attempts. Mm -hmm. They pre pretend to be the victim of an assault just to get what they want. But as I just said, they are not less dangerous than male psychopaths. In fact, psychopathic females who become serial killers typically target their own family members. What? Mm-hmm. How so? They, just, they really don't care. Male psychopaths very rarely kill their family members. Oh my Females. gosh, that's scary. Mm -hmm. I have this theory that in order to become a murderous psychopath, because we have protective factors. We have this biology that allows us to deliver the babies and all the hormones that kick in that make you take care of them. They have to overcome all the social pressures, all the genetic, you know, all the years of DNA being selected for to make you care for young and care for people around you, they have to overcome all of that. So once mm -hmm. they get there, they're nasty. So what? do you have any questions before we dive into why psychopaths are psychopaths? Well, what did any of those therapists that you saw, like do we have any data on any of that? I don't know if she did. She must have seen them in the group home, mm -hmm. but I couldn't dig anything up about that. Nothing. She says she tried to get help, but she didn't say what that meant. And did you say that the father was out of the picture? Father's not talking. No, they are married. He was in the courtroom, but I couldn't find any interviews with him. Oh. Look, we dig hard enough into anybody's past. We can find something, right. but usually that does not a psychopath make on its own. Right. But we can't find anything so far on this. And the brother's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I mean, he appears to be. There's no. We have no reason to think that everybody in this family isn't quote-unquote normal. Right. So it appears, at least from my research and the research of 
from a lot of other people that psychopathy has a very strong genetic underpinning. It's inherited as a cluster of genes, a dominant genetic effect, we call that. So you inherit a group of genes and it either turns on or off the psychopathy. Mm -hmm. So in a pedigree, in a family pedigree, you're going to see you know, maybe a psychopath up here in this generation and maybe two generations as psychopath down here. Not so much like father to son because it's a constellation of genes that's inherited. Yeah, okay. Psychopathic traits, like some of the traits might come down, you know, might just run in the family in general and might come down from mother or father. But the whole, you are a full-blown, getting diagnosed psychopath, which is very complicated since they took it out of the DSM. Mm -hmm. But that is a, a more complicated genetic pattern, but it is very heritable. That is not to say that environment and trauma and parenting don't affect it. Mm -hmm. It can trigger it for mm -hmm. sure. But this is one of those few personality disorders that can exist without environmental problems. Right. Something you inherit. Mm -hmm. Which is so frustrating because it's so much more comforting to us human animals to think, oh, well, that's not going to happen to me because right. I don't abuse my children. Right. But this is one of those it can be a gift if you actually do something good for the world. But I'm so glad you way. said that because people look at me funny if I say that, but it's true. It is true. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's why we know a lot of the people that are really important in today's world, they lack some sort of empathy too. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you want to get rid of all of them? No. Mm -mm. No. I want my surgeon to be not thinking, oh, no, I'm losing her and she's a mom. I want him to be like, I shoot, my reputation's on the line and I'm not losing her. Yeah, I want that motivation with certain people. I want my money manager not to panic when the market is doing yeah. something. I want him to be like, we buy when it's low and I'm not going to panic. And yes, Of course, he doesn't care if I lose my money, but he cares if he loses his. Yeah. Are you thinking about all the people you know who are psychopaths now? <laughs> I'm thinking about some of the most successful people in the world. Mm -hmm. Thinking about the people you dated that I am. cold-hearted. Yeah. Yeah. Here's where I get excited. You can actually see brain differences in psychopathic people. You can see it on the scans. Mm -hmm. Most importantly, in my opinion, are that the differences that we see, they're in the limbic system. And that's a set of brain structures that, among other things, is uh, in charge of processing emotions. Mm -hmm. So it's crazy when it's like, well... It's touchy-feely. They don't feel bad. And that sounds all soft. But it's like, oh, I can point to this almond-shaped area of the brain and show you theirs is broken. Mm -hmm. That leap from mm -hmm. soft science to hard science mm -hmm. is what got me super excited to do what I do, whatever this yeah. is. Yeah. In the psychopath's brain, this area in the, the whole limbic system is measurably different or small. And one of the most important parts is the amygdala that I just mentioned, because it is considered the root cause of this unique cold-hearted behavior. And we see in psychopaths that this undersized or underactive amygdala, we see it and we know that that might be the reason that they don't feel empathy and, and the reason they don't recognize fear in mm -hmm. other people. Detection of another human's emotions is important. Mm -hmm. But if you don't care anyway... right. I'm not sure how right, important it, it is. It doesn't matter. So I worked with one of the godfathers of this research. I was so lucky to just work in his lab for a couple of years before I went to graduate school. His name's Adrian Rain, And we were measuring the amygdalas of criminals. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know at the time why we were, because you know I, I was on a need-to-know basis. But 
he was early to that game. He was early. And Dr. Kent Keel, who is an expert in this, and is, he brings a mobile scanner to prisons and he throws all the prisoners in there and measures the brain. And he says it really, I think, well and concisely. He says, it's just like a weaker muscle. Mm-hmm. You know, psych- psychopaths, they we can work with this, but that they just, they have that structure in their brain, but it's just small. It's and underdeveloped. It's underdeveloped. And he also goes on to say, which I think Cleckley said a long time before him, but something along the lines of psychopaths learn the words, but not the music of an emotion. Mm-hmm. They just don't have the same circuitry. Mm-hmm. By the way, hearing a psychopath talk about, yeah, you guys talk about these feelings and I've never known what you meant. It's <laughs> like talking okay. about a sixth sense that everyone has but you. And you're like, oh, yeah, totally. I feel the vibrations. Yeah, you have to fake it. You fake it. Be really good at it. That's why I studied this in children because they don't know to fake it yet. Mm-hmm. So it's super fun to talk to them. They're like, no, it was fun when the puppy died. You're like, okay, could you sit a little bit farther away? <laughs> so another hallmark of the psychopathic brain is an overactive reward system, especially primed for drugs, sex, or anything else that delivers a ping of excitement. Mm-hmm. And for men and women, that's a little different. So we can see the female psychopaths are harder to to pin down because mm-hmm. what they want looks different. They're usually not dying for sex. They might be dying to get a man, but not necessarily the sex. They might be dying to have a social position. Mm-hmm. So it looks a little different. Plus, parasitic lifestyle is a huge marker of psychopathy, mm-hmm. but nobody cares if a woman's living off of a man generally. Right. You're allowed to do that. Right. I mean, a man wants something else. What do they want? Usually, usually sex, power, money. I see. Okay, great. So now we know. So <laughs> is it easy to measure the amygdala, the length of it? Okay, so yeah, right. We're going to get all these moms putting their kid in the scanner. Yeah. It's, it's a, you know, we don't usually measure just one and be like that one. It is easy to measure it. It mm-hmm. is. But it's the way we get that data is by measuring a ton of them mm-hmm. and then looking at a mathematical difference. So it's hard to look at one person's and be like, it normally should be exactly this size. You can see it's smaller. You can measure it and be like, it is smaller than the average. But usually we do this as a population statistic, not so much as a individual. But you can, and we do it in court. You know, people will say, let's scan his brain, and they'll talk about it being smaller than the average. Mm -hmm. So what do you do if your kid, if you suspect your kid's a psychopath? First of all, psychologists won't call them a psychopath. They'll call them callous and unemotional. They'll Mm -hmm. say that they have that trait. And it's just a euphemism for a group of characteristics that are the same as we just described in the adults. Lack of remorse, guilt, shallow emotions, Uh aggression. These children have no trouble hurting other kids. They're indifferent to it, and and especially if it gets them what they want. And if they are being charming and sweet, Mm -hmm. they're probably manipulating you. They probably want something from you. Mm -hmm. That's the dishonest charm. Yeah. Another thing is they, they too seek... That they thrills like they are thrill seekers. They're sensation seekers, and that is one of those traits that we can actually work with mm-hmm. and change. But what does that look like in your kid? You can look at it two to four year olds. You can see this, and this is mm-hmm. what it looks like. Your child doesn't seem guilty after misbehaving. Punishment doesn't change your child's behavior. Your child is selfish. Your mm-hmm. child won't share. Mm-hmm. Your child lies, and your child is sneaky and tries to get around you. What's the first problem with that, Annie? <laughs> most kids are like that. Most kids are like that. <laughs> I read this. I'm like, oh, that's that's not going to help me on air. The key is 
it's stable over time. They don't grow out of it. Mm-hmm. So you might look at your four-year-old, you're like, okay, you're a little more selfish than the rest. But, and all of them do that sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's most of the time they're like that mm-hmm. and it's stable over time. It doesn't change. I see. So that's what you look like. I mean, it's, it's a little bit better yeah. really to look in hindsight. What if you put like an adorable little kitty, you know, and just test them all out and see what they do with the kitty or a puppy, you know, something really adorable that's needing some help and you see what their behavior is. That's not a bad idea. I mean, sucks for the cat, but (laughs) it's not a bad idea, but you have to make sure that they don't think they're being watched. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. I don't know if I'd go tell the Humane Society that's why you want the cat. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, if it doesn't, they, they can have emotion. I mean, I... There was this one psychopathic killer who had a bunny he loved so much. Bunny. He put like a head on a post. He didn't care about people, but he's like, don't hurt my bunny. Oh. Yeah. So they can form Mm -hmm. some strange attachments to certain things, Mm -hmm. which is weird because they really are shallow emotionally. But Mm -hmm. there are exceptions to this. But yeah, I mean, testing your your kid out with a kitty might not be a bad idea. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if we should say it or not. (laughs) And in other studies, you can actually – spot this callous and unemotional age or behavior by three or four years old, you can see it in in this very specific way. When a child sees another kid crying, Mm -hmm. a normal kid, they're either super unnerved or they're trying to comfort the kid or they're like, get me out of here. Not the psychopathic kids or the callous and unemotional kids. They show this chilly detachment. Mm -hmm. They'll like watch it and just... Totally nonplussed about it. Maybe hmm. I'm curious, but do not care. They okay. just don't care. So psychologists then try to look back. They're like, okay, well, how early can we see this? And I'm, 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 I want to make this clear that these are research projects. So these are hundreds of kids. If your one kid does this, it does not mean they are a psychopath because there are going to be kids who didn't do it. You really truly need a giant group of kids, but but you can measure a difference. They took 205-week-old babies and they tracked whether these babies preferred to look at a person's face or a red ball. Those who favored the ball displayed more callous traits two and a half years later. Researchers see this insensitivity to punishment also in toddlers. That's, I think, key when they just don't care. Mm -hmm. They just don't care. I mean, I'm not sure my kids care so much about their punishments. Like, they're like, oh, whatever. Okay, so I don't get my iPad. Like, they don't care that much, but I think these kids really don't care. And that's where they look very different from other children as well. I see. And being a loving, normal parent's not enough. But we can nudge them. Mm-hmm. And that's where it becomes important is, look, no one's super excited if your kid's a psychopath. You might be excited when they're, you know, super wealthy and buying you a yacht, mom, but mm-hmm. if they're on the right trajectory. Right. But no one's super excited about an emotionless kid. Some of those traits that you talk about remind me of traits that are in, like, autistic kids. Mm -hmm. They can't read emotion, right? Mm -hmm. And kids with ADHD, they're highly impulsive and um, they have, um, what's that? Oppositional defiance disorder. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of these ADHD, autism, like, they have traits that you're talking about. That's right. In a psychopath. I think the difference would be the empathy, remorse, guilt. So they might not be – they're definitely going to want to look at the ball more than the person, right? Mm -hmm. They're definitely not going to be, even as they get older, 
honing in on someone else's emotions, not because they don't care, but because they can't read it. Mm-hmm. I think the, the key difference is they do care if they're punished. They do care about consequences mm-hmm. and they're not cold hearted. Right. I think that's the difference because yeah. a lot of this reads like someone who's just not neurotypical. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's a really important point to bring up. But then here we go again with over time. Because as that child ages, mm-hmm. it gets worse. Like once they're eight to 10, um, and once they're teenagers, they can be just outright scary because mm-hmm. nothing phases them. Mm-hmm. Here's a caveat, you, and, and it's an important thing to notice. Your psychopathic kid is most likely a ringleader. They're not giving into peer pressure. They're using the other kids as pawns mm-hmm. to get it done. And that's something we can monopolize and use to help them. So this gets a little complicated, but we're going to talk about now the heart and low autonomic arousal. And I've mentioned this in other podcasts, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but psychopaths generally have low arousal, low resting heart rates. They are bored. And that explains the thrill-seeking part of it. And they don't really respond to punishments. So that explains the lack of fear of consequences. You think of an optimal level of physiological arousal that a psychopathic needs to get, and they seek out that stimulation. And for kids, that can be something like shoplifting or hurting another kid or getting into a fist fight. Mm -hmm. They have found, and I don't think this is the first course of action, but stimulants can work in these kids. Hmm. Stimulants, a little bit of Ritalin. Mm -hmm. I would say I would rather parents start with um, finding thrill-seeking or nudging their thrill-seeking behavior into things that they can do, mm-hmm. whatever their interests are. It, they're goal-driven. It has to be something they want to do. If it's rock climbing or you know, mixed martial arts fighting, give them something to get their high that has nothing to do with crime. Mm-hmm. But you can medicate it. And you know sometimes that is what you, you have to do. Right. So you have these different parts of biology working in tandem. You have that low resting heart rate, which might lead to thrill-seeking. You have mm-hmm. this amygdala that makes you not give a shit. Mm-hmm. You don't care. You don't, you're not burdened by guilt and remorse. Right. And you're also really, really primed to like rewards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love dopamine. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, great. What can you do for these kids who are too far gone? Right. That you can't stick them in, you know, their base jumping class or whatever it is. They're too old. They're not going to take their stimulant. Mm-hmm. You you no longer have the power to nudge them. Like you recognize this in your kid. Your kid's really smart. They are neurotypical or at least as neurotypical as a psychopath can be. They're constantly looking for a thrill. They get bored easily. They shift activities very quickly. Start doing this. Start giving them agency. Give them something to find their thrill, something to control, Mm -hmm. something to be in charge of. Mm -hmm. But if it's too late, there are treatment centers that have now realized that they have to function completely different from everything else that's been tried. Here's the thing. We know these kids don't respond. They're not reined in by punishment. They've mm-hmm. been kicked out of school. They've, been, they've had all of their belongings taken away. They've been sent to, to homes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But we do know that they respond to rewards. So these are programs that are tailored to the unique emotional, cognitive, and motivation styles found in children who mm-hmm. rank high in psychopathy. I, I I hesitate to talk about these intensive treatment centers. They are for the worst of the worst. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying this, you're trying to give your kids a different thrill-seeking outlet, you're trying to nudge them into pro-social psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Pro-social. 
It's the opposite of antisocial. Antisocial is the crime we see coming out of psychopathy. Mm -hmm. We want the surgeons. Mm -hmm. We don't want the serial killers. Mm -hmm. They're reward-based interventions. They earn privileges based on good behavior. Mm -hmm. Very rarely are they met with punishment. Mm -hmm. There's one that is so fascinating, and it's called the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center in Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. I feel I, I felt so bad for these two psychologists who started it. God bless them. It was in the 90s. All this research was coming up. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, I always say this, this is why we have this podcast, because it is so important that we get this research out there. There is help. We can reduce violence, but mm -hmm. no one talks about it. It all stays in academia. It stays with the researchers. So here we're going to talk about it. They realize, God, we're seeing all this increase in youth violence. Mm -hmm. We know some of these are just psychopathic kids. Mm -hmm. We can treat that. We know that their reward systems are highly, highly sensitive. But punishment, they don't care. They have mm -hmm. no guilt. Stop trying to shame them. They don't care about your shame. They don't care if you lock them up for the rest of their lives. They don't care about your stupid punishments. But we can get them to behave. We can tap into their goal-driven behaviors. We can tap into their interests and reward. Let us try. So... They started this because they wanted to help, but you know what they ended up getting? They ended up getting the worst of the worst in the, the, the juvenile detention centers. Okay. They, it was like they were getting the people at the, the young boys who nobody could handle. But they, they stayed the course, and what they found is really interesting. Their main approach was to be unrelentingly present. And everyone on the staff is trained on this. And what that means is it doesn't matter how often one of these youths hit, bit, spit through feces and urine, mm -hmm. lashed out, whatever they did, it didn't matter how often they did it, mm -hmm. the staff would remain unfaced. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the youth becomes bored. And in that moment, there was a time to connect. They called that decompression. And the idea is this young man who's been living in a state of chaos his entire life is now slowly rising to the surface and will be acclimated to the world without resorting to violence. The second arm of their two-pronged approach plays on the anomalies in the psychopathic brain, and they use that to their advantage specifically, downplaying the punishment, dangling the rewards. And as they say in this program, consequences and punishments don't work, so we're going to give this a try. Mm -hmm. So at Mendota, the boys can accumulate points to join different clubs. These are very prestigious clubs. There's different levels, night, club 19, club 23, and then the VIP club. Mm -hmm. And as they ascend and gain status, um, they earn privileges. Could be candy, could be video games, yeah. baseball cards. Sounds fun. I know that this is hard to imagine a place where it's like, it's all love and light but I think this place really might be. I don't know too much about it, but I was reading it. And I'm like, why have I never heard of this? Mm -hmm. been studying this for two decades. Mm -hmm. So when one of these boys does hit, cuss, you know, throw feces at a staff member, there is a punishment, but it's quick. And it's it, it generally doesn't last for long because it's ineffective. Mm -hmm. Then they take these reward systems that they've taught these boys and they translate it to real world schemas that make sense to the kids. So you're never going to get these children to work in the, within a framework of rules in society on their own accord. They just don't care enough. You can't mm -hmm. tell them it's good to be good. It works better. They're like, mm, okay, neat. I'm so right. glad you feel guilt. Right. I don't care. Mm -hmm. But you can get them to see that they actually benefit from it. Okay. They're selfish as hell. Yeah. So if you're self-serving and you're taught, you know what, just fake it. Just act like this. 
They you might. They want. do. They're goal-driven. So as such, if you can teach them that it's in their best interest and they can join the team, mm -hmm. it's delicate. It takes a while, but the program seems to be working. Wow. At least as far as we can tell, because there's a lot of privacy issues, but mm -hmm. they did follow a lot of these kids mm -hmm. after they felt left the, the facility. Yeah. And they track the public records of 248 of them after the release. That's 100 and, Yeah, it's a big number, mm -hmm. 248. Mm -hmm. 147 of them had been in corrections and 101 of them had been from Mendota, from the treatment facility. And in the four and a half years since the release, the Mendota boys have been far less likely to reoffend, 64% versus 97%. Still high numbers. We know 64% is more than half, but 97% of the kids who were just in the juvenile detention system. Right. It's a big improvement. Mm -hmm. And far less likely to commit a violent crime, Thir only 36% of the Mendota boys who came in as the worst mm -hmm. versus 60% of the boys who just stayed in the normal detention center. Most striking, though, the ordinary delinquents have killed 16 people since their release. And the boys from Mendota, zero. That's the best news. Best news. Mm -hmm. I got so excited. So is it expensive? Is it available to just lower income? That's an excellent question. I, I am sure it's covered. I'm not sure it's covered, but I do not think this is a group of rich people because I think this is an alternative mm -hmm. and you can be assigned to this center, but I don't know that it's necessarily available. The Mendota Center mm -hmm. is available to everyone. These other centers are, and I don't know how they're pay paid for. Right. And that is... We come across that all the time. Mm -hmm. Access. I mean, this is the best news I've heard because I can tell parents and teachers like, look, there's nothing wrong with your kid being a fledgling psychopath, but it's now up to you to make sure they're not criminal. Yeah. But there's actually centers that do it. Yeah. If I were if I were a parent of a potential psychopath, I'd be all over this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd be so happy to know that there's some help for him or her. And you'd be paying attention to what interests that child. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in little female psychopaths, you'll see them starting to manipulate the kids in their classroom, starting to hurt them, <laughs> starting to spread rumors, uh -huh. maybe attack a stuffed animal, get a huge thrill out <laughs> of it. And the boys, you're going to see them starting fights on the playground. Mm -hmm. It looks different. Mm -hmm. But if you can find a way for them to get that high yeah. elsewhere, yeah. you have to lean into it. Yeah. Definitely. But leaning in also takes financial resources. So I think that's mm -hmm. all part of it, too, is, um, you know, having the ability to do that, not two parents who work full time mm -hmm. and don't have time to lean in. Right. So, or I don't have money. Yeah. I don't have money to, to give in to his newfound love for skydiving. Right. <laughs> right. It's not cheap. Yeah. How are you going to pay for that? Yeah. And yeah. I think the argument would be that social programs, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the juvenile detention system it eats up a ton of money. What if more centers are sponsored? What if funding is transferred? I don't know how that all works, but right. if you can eliminate the problem before it comes a problem. Totally. And if Mendota is working, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and as I said, there's other centers. I read about a child who's in a center. She was sent there when she was five. Mm -hmm. And usually when it's really bad, when they're really young, those, those don't have great outcome because those it's great when the symptoms show up when they were young because you can identify it but it also means they might be the worst oh. and this child tried to kill her siblings her little baby siblings but anyways they sent her to a center oh. 
and she's been improving. Mm -hmm. And her father said, our hope is that she's able to have a cognitive understanding that even though my thinking is different, my behavior needs to walk down this path so that I can enjoy the things that I want. Mm -hmm. So the goal is not to make them grow empathy because they won't. They can't. Right. And I think if you recognize that they, they, they're they missing that circuitry, mm -hmm. you can have more empathy for that yourself as an empathetic person. Right. But you can also improve that circuitry by teaching them how to act at least remorseful and ma making it kind of like a muscle memory thing for them. Right. It becomes more of a behavior and a pattern like to recognize if I play within these rules, these are the rewards. Because mm -hmm. so far they've only faced punishments. Right. And then there's that whole biofeedback world, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can try to grow certain muscles in your brain. You can measure it. Biofeedback's mm -hmm. incredible. I don't know if biofeedback would work for a right. psychopath. It's really great for the conduct disordered kids. Mm -hmm. It's really great for those kids who have prefrontal lobe differences. Mm -hmm. You can see prefrontal lobe problems in psychopaths, but it's never as bad as you think because then they couldn't be so calculating. Right. They wouldn't have that control. That's right. Um, biofeedback is excellent though if you just have a really impulsive misbehaving kid. And then you can actually measure. It takes that part of the brain and it it grows. Yeah. The neurons, they it, you can measure. It becomes, you can measure it both in structure and in behavior or and in, in, in like the function. You can measure, it turns red. It's metabolizing glucose. We can see it. Mm -hmm. Not red in real life, but red in the scans. So I have a couple of children in my orbit who I think are psychopathic. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy conversation to have with a parent. So I, right. I don't. I don't have that conversation with the parents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Maybe after a few drinks or? Well, just because you've seen me drinking, so you know. <laughs> uh, so I don't know how to do this other than to have a podcast people can listen to and just be like, okay, I'm not going to talk about this out loud because no one wants to say I think my kid's a psychopath. But now that I know that there are things I can do at home privately, I can medicate them with a stimulant if they need it. Mm -hmm. I can nudge them toward pro-social. And if worse comes to worse, I can try to get them into one of these centers. Mm -hmm. Lower income families appeal, uh, go to these centers and look to see what are the options? What are the funding options? There might be funding options. Teachers, if you're recognizing it, look into how you could perhaps help a kid who is going to end up in jail otherwise. And you promise me if it's ever my kid. It is not me. your kid. <laughs> I mean, and for me, I'm like, ooh, that kid's my favorite. They're fascinating. They and they don't know to lie about it. Mm -hmm. So they're like, it was so cool when I smothered my brother. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. It's really amazing. And then they'll talk to you about it. Like, why would I care? They're so confused when you're like, how did you feel when you knew little Jimmy was hurt? Yeah. Oh, I felt good. Or <laughs> my mommy cut herself and there was so much blood. And they describe feeling overjoyed. Yeah. It's exciting. Right. They're getting that ping. Uh-huh. They're a thrill. They're thrill. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, so we're going to put you in hedge fund school right now. <laughs> So anyway, that's, you know, it, it's a tough, it's a tough conversation to have. Hopefully people look it up privately if they don't want to talk to their, I don't know if I talk to my pediatrician about this. My pediatrician's not going to know about this. Just read a book, you know, read, look into the people who are studying fledgling psychopaths, budding psychopaths and, and mm -hmm. look, dig deep, it's online. You can find all of this research. I mean, I certainly, when I was first started researching what we can do about it, that was the whole point of all of my research. It's amazing how far it's come mm -hmm. and that there are things that can be done. And change your mindset. 
Mm-hmm. You know, Bill Clinton, I always say, is my favorite psychopath. <laughs> I'm sure his mom's really damn proud of him. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, he's pro-social guy. He's done great things. Do I think he's burdened by a lot of guilt and remorse? I do not. Mm-hmm. But I think that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Well, I think it's great you're bringing awareness to society about this and that there can be things that you can do to help at a young age. Yeah. yeah you know, and I think these centers, reading about these kids who end up in there, these reward-based centers, I think that's where the future is going to be. I think we're going to have to see some change in terms of, I think we need outpatient systems because not everyone's going to be willing to send their kid away. Right. I think we need therapists who are super trained in this, mm-hmm. who will train the parents how to do it mm-hmm. and get whatever this magic sauce in these treatment centers into the home. Yeah. I mean, that's more palatable, right? Yeah. I couldn't imagine sending one of my kids away. Yeah. I love that we're, we're trying to treat the source and identify at such a young age. Mm-hmm. If we can direct more funding that way, that would be amazing. This seems to come up a lot where we talk about how to not raise a serial killer, what can you do? Mm-hmm. And there are all these programs, and I talk about them on the, the shows, and then I learn that they're so underfunded. Mm-hmm. And that's really frustrating because of all the money that does get funneled into juvenile detention. And guess where juvenile offenders go? They go to prison afterward. 97, what was that stat I read? 97 yeah. recidivated? They, yeah. they did it again? Right. So wouldn't you rather yeah, redirect funding to something that's more effective like the Mendota? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you think anyone cares and will listen to us? I, yeah. Okay. Actually, especially in today with all these shootings that are happening mm-hmm. with these schools, I think it's perfect timing. And I forget that I'm talking to this person who literally puts her money where her mouth is. Like, I have seen you dedicate yourself to an incredible cause that focuses on what if we do this? What if we do education a little differently? <laughs> what if we give access? to lower SES a little differently than what's available to them now. Thank you for bringing awareness. Okay, well, thank you, Annie, so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. That was fun. I love my smart friends. (laughs) Okay, this is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and we will see you next week. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna, Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H-N-T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.